Ohio, motherfuckers. This is Tangredom and I'm your host Iggy, and today we're gonna talk about one fight. Only one, that's right, because it was the only fight I've watched. It was Terence Crawford versus uh, Sean Porter. I didn't bother watching uh, the UFC fight night that happened uh, last weekend, because why would I? Uh, I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure Thrill and Ed uh, or someone else have done something about it are gonna and are going to release something regarding those fights. If not, then just check out Thrill's account where he talks about the only two fights that were interesting on the card. And uh, I'm not going to bother recapping the whole fight that happened between uh, Terence Crawford and Sean Porter because uh, there's going to be... Unless something goes wrong, there's going to be uh, an actual boxing podcast released by Dan and Lukash, where they actually recap the fight and break down the fight punch by punch, uh, every sequence in depth and all that kind of stuff. There's some, there's just some very interesting conceptual stuff I would like to talk about very quickly on this podcast, because Terence Crawford does some things at an immensely high level, and he does them very interestingly. And uh, it tends to kind of like model the perception of uh, the people talking about those fights because it's it kind of looks like Terence Crawford just kind of like doesn't bother, uh, doesn't bother fighting <laughs> for large stretches of, uh, for for large stretches of that fight, and then he just suddenly goes, "Oh, okay, I guess I guess I, I can knock him out now. Uh, it's finally time. I've I've been given the the green light." To, to actually get this guy out of here. And it's not really what happened. The key operating word of today's podcast will be intent. It will be... Uh, it's a, And by intent, I mean... Uh, I mean many different things, and I'm going get, to like, get into the uh, n- uh, nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of the whole thing uh, just uh, further down the line. But uh, I guess for the benefit of those for the benefit of those who haven't watched the fight yet, well, first of all, go back and watch it. It's very interesting. It's uh, highly entertaining, if uh, if only because of uh, Terence Crawford's in- incredible uh, tactical and uh, in-fight acumen, if nothing else. But it was a, a very spirited effort from from Sean Porter, and he. Um, I'm pretty sure he retired. He announced uh, his retirement immediately after, and I get it because uh, he kind of like faced uh, the who's who of the division and uh, hasn't been able to really like break past a certain ceiling. And it's really like not his fault. Just um, uh, had the tremendous luck of being born into an era where there's uh, multiple, where there's many tremendous generational talents being born uh, and uh, competing in his division so it's kind of like uh, what what can he do you, he would have he would have ed- ended up becoming a gatekeeper and uh, it's uh, kind of like it's it's a really unfortunate position to be to get stuck in because uh, once you invest so much time and so much effort into becoming a great fighter and then it turns out that your all this effort like he gave it one hundred percent, and then it turned out that one hundred percent is just—it's it, just—it simply just isn't enough to to like uh, hack it in there with the elites. 
very demoralizing stuff. And uh, in the wake of his father, like, straight up just talking shit about him, like, heaping abuse on, on him uh, in the wake of the fights, it's kind of like, you know, uh, uh, may have been uh, a spur of the moment kind of thing, like uh, an emotional response, but nonetheless, I think it's the correct decision. I mean, you've accomplished everything that you could have at this very high level, and you've had uh, a great run, uh, lots of uh, entertaining, interesting fights, and um, for some, that's the ex that that is going to be the extent of their uh, legacy, of their ability to like leave a mark uh, in in the history of the sport. Sad stuff, but what can you do? Anyway, the fight itself, uh, it was kind of like dictated by Sean Porter putting on like. As usual, he he threw at a tremendous clip. Uh, I'm not. I'm just gonna get this right out of the, out of the way. Just a bit of a disclaimer. I'm not very familiar with Sean Porter's career, so uh, I'm gonna refrain from commenting too much on his fighting style. I'm just gonna focus on the things that Terence Crawford uh, has done in order to mitigate and navigate Sean Porter. I'm not that familiar with Terence Crawford either, for the record, uh, but uh, from what I've been able to glean from this performance, I've noticed several very, several very interesting and very, like, um, uh, very high-level sort of uh, conceptual things that he does on a strategic level and, like, on a tactical level. So basically, I'm just going to comment on what I saw. So Sean Porter would enter behind darting jabs, sort of like blitz into range, because he was uh, at a range disadvantage, a noticeable range disadvantage, and he would connect at a decent clip. However, uh, since uh, Terence Crawford is so defensively responsible and uh, has tremendous defensive re reflexes and instincts, not a lot of those uh, blitzes were connecting clean. He would connect with the, first, with the initial jab uh, quite often, but after a certain point, Terence Crawford started rolling with the jab, started like baiting the jab and kind of like taking it at the very edge of Porter's range to kind of like make him overextend. And um, I assume it's a bit of a tendency from Porter, uh, if you listen to the commentary at least, and if you uh, to look at the comments that uh, this uh, uh, that uh, that this dynamic brought about. And Crawford's natural response to... Well, generally speaking, what's the natural counter to someone who is overextending over and over again? Uh, it's one of uh, two things. If you're standing close stance, if you're fighting close stance, it's usually going to be your lead hook. If you're fighting open stance, then uh, the the rear uppercut is going to be there all day. If you're fighting close stance, then the lead uppercut and also the rear uppercut as well. Basically, uppercuts are going to be uh, uh, basically, uppercuts are going to rule the day, essentially. And Terence Crawford would throw lots of, uh, like, would throw bo both strikes quite often. Like, he would attempt a check hook quite often that would usually connect on the gloves. And I'm going to talk about um, uh, the concept of uh, throwing the check hook not to necessarily hurt your opponent, but to kind of like glue his rear hand to his jaw. And this is like ties to the intent 
theme of this podcast. But one other thing that uh, struck out to me was that Terence Crawford is just so much more potent in the clinch. He didn't necessarily work on the inside, but he out-wrestled Sean Porter quite a bit in that fight because he would, uh, like, Sean Porter would barge in with this darting jab and then uh, Terence Crawford would kind of sort of roll with the jab and then duck under and secure uh, over underhooks or overhooks or, like, a an over-under control, and then, like, sort of, like, shuck uh, Porter's, like, uh, shuck Porter's, do an over an overhook or an underhook shuck uh, against Porter and then, like, secure his back. <laughs> it's kind of, like, more of a, looked more of, like, a wrestling move more than anything else, more like a, looked more like a wrestling clinch than a boxing clinch is how I would put it. But since this is boxing and Sean Porter can... Uh, it can actually work on the inside. He attempted to work on the inside quite a bit. It's just that Terence Crawford's defense on the inside was just completely on point. Like his defensive reactions on the inside are incredible. Not to the extent where I would say that he matches like someone like Roberto Duran or like um, uh, uh, so say a Henry Armstrong, but it's still very impressive. And the reason why he's so good in there is that he actually feels, he's very adept at feeling um, where his opponent's weight shifts from one side to another, from uh, from the rear foot to front foot, like uh, the way the opponent's body tenses, that kind of stuff. It's very uh, feel-oriented. When you're working on the inside, you're going to be working by feel. You're not going to be relying on your vision because you're just way too close to see anything coming. And so Sean Porter would attempt a strike and then Terence Crawford would feel the strike coming with his arms and with his, bo- with his body, like in general. And he would feel the weight shifting and then he would adjust his posi- position and then he would roll with the strike or then or he would raise his arms to like redirect the strikes. It's kind of like if you watch Roberto Duran and if you uh, find Lee Wiley on YouTube, Lee Wiley actually is a, is a big fan of Duran and a big fan of infighting, and he talks about a, talks about infighting a whole lot. And it's kind of like it's it's a concept similar to the concept you you can find in something like Wing Chun. Um, it's one of the uh, one of the few things that actually w- translate really well to com- to actual combat sports from Wing Chun. It's the hand control thing. It's the hand trapping and uh, redirecting of your opponent's hands with your own hands. You, you, it's it's a concept that is actually very similar to sword binding, uh, sword binding in fencing. If you look up fencing, uh, if you fencing instructionals, and if you look up, uh, let's say historical martial arts channels, they talk about sword binding quite a bit, the blade binding. And what uh, what I mean by that is um, the contact. You establish contact between the two blades, and that way you may you can actually feel in which direction your opponent wants the blade to go. You kind of like feel the weight shifting. You feel the tension in the blade, and th- this allows you to actually understand the direction in which the blade will go. However, you can also faint with it. Uh, if you're proficient with blade binding, you can like sort of like faint a direction. You can fake a direction and then redirect your blade and then stab your opponent. That kind of stuff. Similar thing 
here. Similar thing with boxing and similar thing with hand trapping and hand binding, binding I guess. Uh, you feel the hand moving with your own arm. And then you kind of sort of like change the angle on your own uh, on your own arm. You kind of like sort of, for example, you rotate your elbow upwards and rotate your forearm with the direction in which the hand is moving, and then the shot misses. And from then and from there, you can adjust your position and re-establish control over your opponent. Obviously, all the other stuff uh, that marks good infighting still applies. Head positioning, foot positioning, that kind of stuff. Uh, Terence Crawford is immensely uh, adept at maintaining his foot positioning, um, just in general, but also in the infight as well. Because a lot of the time you see boxers clinch and then they would sort of like walk around one another. They wouldn't like maintain their stance. They wouldn't position their feet at 45 degree angles pointed in opposite direction to establish to establish good footing, good solid footing that would prevent their opponent from moving them, physically moving them and shoving them. Terence Crawford is incredible at it, uh, at least in a boxing contest. <laughs> Not sure how his wrestling would hold up against a, an actual wrestler, but you know, for boxing, it's it's uh, very interesting to study. Incredibly interesting to study if you wish to learn. Uh, how to clinch up and how to tie up and how to work on the inside in MMA. And in MMA, you have the added benefit of uh, the MMA gloves because you can actually grab your opponent and then you can actually control the wrists with your own grips. That's why the concepts of grip fighting are so important in MMA. Uh, I would refer you to, uh, well, figures like Matt Brown and obviously Piotr Jan and uh, Kamar Usman uh, for... Like, uh, f for if you want to study how to fight grips and how to establish grips and how to establish control in the clinch, control your opponent in the clinch and physically, like, move him around. Very interesting stuff. But, yeah, like, punch and clutch is a very important, it's, it's a very crucial concept in boxing. If uh, your opponent seeks to establish prolonged exchanges in the pocket and if you don't feel like spending too much of your energy exchanging with them right like right in front of them in the kitchen grabbing a hold of them and clinching is an entirely valid tactic an incredibly effective tactic not even it's i would recommend it to anyone who struggles with opponents who are good in the pocket but i would also recommend it to anyone who is also good in the pocket but would like to dictate exchanges on their own terms and you saw alexander Volkanovsky demonstrate that against Brian Ortega in their fight at uh, UFC 260... What was it? Oh yeah, it was UFC 266. Uh, when, whenever Brian Ortega tried to enter uh, tried to enter his range and establish his range and start working, start exchanging with uh, Volkanovsky, Volkanovsky would just sort of uh, shove his body into him, grab a hold of the clinch and then separate. It messes you with your opponent's rhythm, uh, does not allow your opponent to establish range, his preferred range, and does not allow the opponent to, well, exchange, basically, because you're tying him up. And a lot of people decry it as hugging, in boxing in particular, but I think the reason why it happens is that the clinch has atrophied so much in modern boxing, and it's a similar thing to modern Muay Thai, because the clinch... Because 
clinch exchanges on the inside are so discour discouraged by the modern m meta, I guess, it uh, turns into these hugging contests where uh, the uh, where where both fighters sort of grab a hold of one another and don't do much with it. Don't establish position. Don't try to work. Don't try to throw strikes from there. And so it just looks boring. It's just boring. However, if you go back and watch some classic Muay Thai fights and some classic boxing fights, the exchanges on the inside are tremendously fun. They they're incredibly fun. It's it's so dynamic, it's so intricate. The control of a positioning, the control of a grips, the control of the arms and hands, the head positioning, uh, all that kind of stuff. It's great. Highly recommend you check it out and highly recommend you educate yourself on the art of infighting. And Lee Wiley is the best source on that uh, in boxing. Pretty sure Ryan Wagner also wrote, um, that fucker Ryan Wagner wrote uh, a, a big article on the Muay Thai clinch in MMA uh, using uh, Loma Lugbunmi as an example. Sadly, Loma Lugbunmi lost uh this weekend and i haven't watched this fight and according to some comments of from my psg didn't look didn't look all that hot which is unfortunate but what are you gonna do still tremendous excellent very interesting stylist uh very interesting muay thai stylist so uh, definitely read that article and check out her fights and uh, just check out some muay thai to learn uh, to sort of like get a visual example of what Ryan is going to be talking about in the article. Anyway, uh, let's get into the uh, the concepts I was talking about, the intent. Terence Crawford does everything with a clear intent. He clearly knows what he's going to do and for what purpose. What do I mean by that? Uh, when you see, when you generally like pick up a fight, like pick a fight, uh, put it up, watch any random fight, and uh, at the mid level, at the intermediate level, what you see is that a lot of fighters have like a couple setups that they know that work well together, and the rest is just them trying to like trying to find connective tissue between those strikes and kind of like sort of failing, falling a bit short, falling just short of getting to that. Rear, uh, getting to that real elite level. What do I mean by that? Every punch past a certain point at the elite level, there's like a couple... This is what people talk about when they talk about road fighters and they talk about instinctual fighters. And there's the sort of happy medium that elevates everything above those two levels, above those two archetypes i guess instinctual fighters kind of like have a natural eye for an opening they kind of understand where they need to throw to hurt their opponent and sometimes the kind of it leads to situations like for example with brian otega it leads to situations where you uh, brian otega gets beaten up and beaten up and beaten up and finally he finds this counter uh in the middle of his opponent's combination and like really hurts his guy but it's very uh if it doesn't have connective tissue, if it doesn't have, uh, if the fighter doesn't have a real intellectual understanding of what he's doing, it's going to lead to inconsistency. With road fighters, it's the opposite problem. They just have a, a, a preset of combinations that they've drilled over and over again, and they throw them every time they witness a trigger to throw that strike. It's it's all trigger based, and because 
it's all trigger-based, and because they're always on a hair trigger to throw that exact combination at this exact moment when they see the, the signal to throw the combination, they can become predictable. You can dupe them into throwing the counter combination and then counter their counter. And usually, this is where most road fighters fall apart because they don't know what to, what to do afterwards because the reaction is just so ingrained in them. And then there's, uh, I guess, the upper level of that. Uh, I generally hate about talking in, uh, in terms of levels, but uh, I guess you know what I mean. I'm not talking about some things being strictly better than others. Uh, it's more like uh, this is what's appropriate in one in any in this what's appropriate in some situation in situations and what's inappropriate in others and um in combat sports there's generally in, and in fighting in general it's not about what's better it's more about like what's appropriate and what's inappropriate however when you have that connective tissue and when you have that intellectual understanding of uh, uh which punch works with uh, uh what like like what's what works off what then you can bring your understanding and your fighting style. Uh, I'm almost about to say level again. Not a level, but like elevate your overall fighting game, is how I would put it. Like, for example, the uppercut that uh, Terence Crawford kept setting up. Well, first of all, obviously, when you throw an uppercut a counter uppercut at a lunging opponent who's who's barging into range it's going to sap their energy very quickly it's incre- it's an incredibly painful shot to take also it's also just tremendously discouraging so it puts additional mental pressure on your opponent like oh fuck i need to enter range but i i'm going to be I, I i have to be wary about that uppercut coming in and so and beyond that, performed correctly, when performed correctly, the uppercut can become the connecting strike between your head and body attack, provided you mix it in well. Because it forces your opponent to stand up straight for fear of ducking onto the uppercut or walking with your body onto the uppercut, which opens up further avenues to the body, because your opponent is now more upright. It opens up new avenues to the head, like one-twos, hooks, etc., because the head is right there, and throwing, uh, throwing downward, throw, punching down is generally something you don't want to do because it uh, creates defensive gaps. Uh, it creates gaps in your defense. It's kind of dangerous. It's uh, why fighters such as Mike Tyson were so tremendously effective against fighters who were taller than them because they know how to bait those uh, uh, punching down reactions and then counter with uh, leaping hooks and overhands uppercuts as well to make sure the opponent stands up straight continues standing up straight uh, that kind of stuff and so and beyond that like uh, just generally the concept of uh, the purpose behind strikes the intent behind strikes like for example the jab may force your opponent to parry it to try and parry it like they would move their rear hand in front of their chin to try and like a sort of like uh, block the punch and parry the punch, make it, like redirect the jab downwards and then like counter with their own strike. In response to that, you can use the jab hook mix up. You like a you throw a non-committal jab and then loop your hand around the guard, 
and connect with like a sort of like a slappy hook on the jaw. And this catches your opponent off guard, and this forces your opponent to be more serious about defending your hook. So now they have to worry about where to place their hand. Do they have to keep it glued to the jaw, or do they have to like move it in front to parry the jab? This opens up your 1-2, and beyond that you can continue slamming hooks to keep the opponent's rear hand glued to their jaw. And if you maintain this initiative, another important concept I'm going to uh, talk about. So if you maintain that initiative, your opponent is now shelled up, they're in a shell. When they're in a shell, they can't exactly counter efficiently, counter quickly. So now it's time to start working around the shell. You rip around the guard with hooks. You let looks. Uh, you let loose with body strikes. And obviously, ideally, you'd want to start mixing in body strikes from the word go. Like for example, throwing like body jabs and uh, rear straights to the body. And say your opponent starts slipping and ducking in response to your strikes. Now the uppercut comes back. Now you have the opportunity to begin timing uppercuts to make sure. They either stand up straight uh, again, and or you can time uppercuts to make sure that they walk onto them and hurt them. Either way, it creates a situation where they where you go back to square one. You can repeat the sequence. And obviously, no one is going to simply let you do all these things in a sequence as if you're going down the list. But this is the general idea of how different punches work together. And once you've internalized that, now you can start learning how to string combinations together with purpose. Purpose. Very important. If you really want to hurt the guy, it's not about connecting with every strike. Rather, it's about setting up the strike you want to connect with after a sequence of fakes, feints and shots you can afford not to land. Throwaways. Like... Uh... Another important one, the most important one, uh, uh, is fighting for position. That last one, like, uh, after feints, fakes, mix-ups, and all that kind of stuff, like, fighting for position, it's more important than pretty much everything else. You always want to win the position first, and this is what Crawford did a lot of the time. I'm gonna, like, this is gonna make sense later on, I promise you. You always want to win the position first. Like, generally speaking, you want to have the better angle, the better footing. And so, for example, if you're fighting close stunts, orthodox versus orthodox or southpaw versus southpaw, when you're jabbing, you may want to have your foot pointing directly at your opponent's center line with your torso turned slightly at an angle so you don't just stand right in front of the guy. Like, if you go back and watch uh, Jan versus Sandhagen, what Peter did, uh, what Peter did, was uh, to never let Corey get away from him or, or keep firing at him while moving, because this would give Corey advantageous angles. So it constantly cuts off Sandy's, uh, Sandy's escape routes and make sure he always sees where Corey's center line is. And while Corey tried to use direction changes and direction fakes to try and get the better angle on Yan, and by direction changes and direction fakes, I mean like. Like, pretending to move one way and then circling off uh, another way. And, like, he had to use all those direction fakes and direction changes, and he had to work really hard to make sure he doesn't stand in front of Peter Jan. Because 
Jan would just use that as his cue to retaliate, blitz in and beat him up. Every time Kuri froze in front of Jan, even for a split second, Jan would blitz in and deck him. And this kind of ties into the concepts um, uh, like you see in Soviet boxing. You frequently see mentions of fighters deciding to fight as number one and number two. Number one initiates the action and number two responds. And that doesn't mean that number one has the initiative. Number one simply tries to press the issue, to go forward, while number two may remain completely in control of the fight, while doing nothing but essentially letting number one do his thing. Then number two sees what number one wants to do, uh, and then and then number two punishes him. And again, one is not better than the other. Working as number two can lead you, can lead to you losing the initiative if you're not good enough, while working as number one may lead to you getting counted over and over again if you, if the skill gap is too large. It's all about using your tools with purpose. So. What, what does this all mean? If you're good enough, you may start winning exchanges before they happen, simply because you know where to place your feet. If you train, you may not notice it in training against certain partners who may not have gotten the hang of it yet. Like The easiest example everyone brings up is keeping your front foot outside of your opponent's front foot in orthodox versus southpaw matchups, in open stance matchups. Everyone talks about how it shortens the path of your rear hand so you can deck your opponent easier, but the real reason is, or well, first reason, it allows you to pivot behind your opponent's lead shoulder, that is, pivot behind the extent of your opponent's peripheral vision. So now you can throw strikes from a position your opponent can't see. Number two, once you start fighting from positions that are awkward for your opponent, once you start fighting from positions awkward for your opponent, that is, advantageous angles, it becomes harder and harder for your opponent to maintain their initiative. And if they wise up and start joking and start like joking and start like fighting for the outside foot positioning, you can surprise them because inside foot position can also be an advantageous angle because it opens up your jab and your lead hook. It shortens the path of your jab and your lead hook. Once they move like you bait you bait your opponent into taking this angle, and then you throw a counter lead hook before they're able to find the rear hand. See? It all works together. It all makes sense. It's a system of positions. And Terence Crawford is tremendous at maintaining like, and playing that position game. Like, it may have looked that Crawford was just taking the like pretty much most of the fight off. Like, waited it, waited it out and then waited until Sean Porter gassed himself out. And commentary always, like, throughout the fight, the commentary was talking on and on about how Sean Porter is not going to... Sean Porter is not going to slow down. Is that elite. He's an elite fighter with tremendous conditioning. He's uh, very, very good at his game. And he wasn't going to simply fade from doing his own thing. Elite fighters do not fade from performing their A game. So naturally this took a lot of work, a lot of very subtle, barely noticeable work from Terence Crawford to make sure Sean Porter falls off just a teensy little bit, like maybe 2 or 5%, just a small misstep, a small mistake 
the tiniest mistake that would lead to the finish. If you go back and watch the fight, uh, what you will notice is that Sean Porter, uh, while yes, he was um, overextending himself quite a bit, he was kind of taking calculated risk because he had to overcome a range disadvantage. And uh, Terence Crawford is uh, incredible at maintaining a proper position. So, uh, like, like trying to sort of like very carefully, passively work his worm his way into range would just lead to Terence Crawford boxing him up on entry. And so he had to had to come up with something explosive, something fast, something something uh something like um something dynamic uh that uh, wouldn't give uh, Terence Crawford too much time to kind of notice it and work it out the problem with that is that it's tremendously risky because it's easier to work it out down the stretch if you're as good as Terence Crawford you you and uh, this is what he did he figured out the timing on that lunge and then he's you would take like in uh, Contrast to Sean Porter's big lunging step forward, where he kind of like sort of almost fell over himself. Terence Crawford readjusted his position by taking like three or four tiny, tiny steps, teensy tiny steps that would that maintain his stance, that allowed him to maintain his stance and adjust his angles with like this uh, with this pre- precision that larger steps would not allow. Uh, would not have allowed him to. So he would very economically readjust his position, which lends to a net positive overall throughout the fight if you're good enough, because it maintains your cardio. Uh, it allows you to conserve your energy while finding your spots, finding the spots during which you may counter your opponent's offense. And that's where the uppercuts come in, that's where the check hooks come in. Uh, people criticized Terence Crawford for not jabbing with Sean Porter too much, but I think it was like another one of those calculated decisions, tactical decisions, because from this position, uh, it would force Terence Crawford to move too much. It doesn't really play into his strengths because he kind of like gets his reads and then sets up uh, sets sets up the knockout punches. A volume uh, wouldn't have. Uh, done him much good here because it would involve a firefight it would involve exchanging with sean porter because this is what sean porter looked for and terence crawford really looked to he looked to exchange as well he just simply looked to dictate exchanges on his own terms enter exchanges on his own terms and exit them on his own terms and sort of like bait sean porter into committing to exchanges that he wouldn't have won really or interrupting uh those exchanges, like firing off a counter combination, like an uppercut, an uppercut right hook, and then he would like, and then he would clinch up and then interrupt Sean Porter's follow-up offense, which you know, leads to this rhythm that it's uh, that is very uncomfortable to deal with mentally and physically. Like it's like start, stop, start, stop. It's uh, very hard to deal with. It kind of like takes a lot out of you. Because you have to reset in your mind. You constantly have to reset your position. You constantly have to start all over again. And uh, past a certain point, you could see Sean Porter kind of like start deflating. Like, oh, for fuck's sake, again! I have to do this explosive entry again and try to like lunge after and try to chase after Terence Crawford again. 
And admittedly, Sean Porter maintained, tr- showcased excellent discipline and actually following up on the, on his entries. Like he wouldn't simply barge in and so wouldn't simply blitz in. He would try to rotate with Terence Crawford, try to turn with Terence Crawford, try to maintain his stance against Terence Crawford. So really all this, what this does is create tremendous mental pressure. It creates immense mental pressure and uh, mental tension in your opponent. And it's kind of one of those weird things where Crawford fought off the back foot for large proportions of the fight, for large stretches of the fight, and then he would press forward without really throwing any strikes. And it's it, it kind of like... It's uh, It creates more pure pressure than... Uh, an actual active forward moving uh, striking game, like where you move forward and you throw strikes, you throw jabs. Terence Crawford was able to create pressure without throwing any strikes, essentially. He would win positioning. Sean Porter would recognize that Terence Crawford has the better angle on him and he would just be lulled into passivity. And then Terence Crawford would just sort of play around with him, like kind of like move his head from side to side, kind of like pretend that he's going to throw something without throwing anything. It kind of creates the impression that Terence Crawford is playing with his food, which is, I guess, why certain people just figured, like, oh, Terence Crawford is just like, you know, he's got this. Uh, Just took most of the fight off and then just decked him. And the commentary was talking, it's it's a very risky thing to do because, as the commentary said, and I, I, like, while I may not agree with it philosophically, I agree with it in terms of how it looks. Like, the optics it creates, it makes it seem like Sean Porter is actually winning rounds. He's actually taking rounds of Terence Crawford. But the thing is, Terence Crawford didn't really look to win the rounds. He really looked to win the fight. And it's a similar thing to... I guess it's more obvious than uh, the example I'm going to bring up because the fight ended in the finish. But it's kind of similar to how Peter Ian performed against Jimmy Riviera. Uh... People talk about how Rivera won rounds, how he outlanded Petrian, and Petrian didn't really look to win the rounds, he looked to win the fight, he didn't look to outland Jimmy Rivera, he looked to punish him, he looked to comprehensively break him down and then put him on his ass. And that's what happened. And that's the general trend we see in how Petrian operates in general, like in his most recent outings against Corey Sanhagen, for example, or Aljamain Sterling. Like, he would let Aljamain Sterling work, uh, work for, like, measly connections, work incredibly hard for measly connections that didn't, like, accomplish much for the first couple rounds, and then he would just, like, he, he would he, he put him on his ass with the first right hand, with the first straight hand that he threw, with the first straight punch. Like, really, pressure is all about forcing your opponent into making mistakes, uh, forcing your opponent into making mistakes, like, for example, taking big lunging steps, telegraphing their movement, throwing out of position, etc. Like, proper pressure is a blend. It's a blend. It's a blend of constant forward uh, slash lateral movement and the occasional backward step. Like, for example, you may ease off the pressure to take an angle, which tricks the opponent into thinking the coast is clear, and then you floor them with an intercepting strike as they try to bail on you. 
Like a good way to think about it is uh, to think that you're eating away at space. You're not trying to push anyone backwards. You're leaving your opponent with less and less space to navigate. Like, for example, uh, a very primitive, very easy example. You use the double jab to get your opponent moving backwards. Take maybe five or six tiny steps to eat up the space that's been created. You sort of eat away. Keep eating away at that space. Keep eating away at that space. And then when, once you see that they're closer to the ropes or to the fence, you go jab straight to the body, hard straight to the body, get them running. And once you see that they're on the ropes or on the fence, now they only have two avenues to escape. They're either going to move left or right. They can't exactly melt through you. Now, can they? So you fake commit to one side. For example, you throw uh, a lead right. And then as they circle off, you intercept them on the other side with something like a wide right hook, wide shifting right hook, for example. Something like, kind of similar to the uh, Justin Gage versus uh, Edson Barboza finish, where he threw uh, uh, a right hand and then immediately shifted to southpaw and floored him with a wide right hook that caught him right on the jaw. The goal is to use your presence and the threat of your attacks to get your opponent jittery while limiting the amount of attacks you have to react to yourself, which makes defense that much easier because you actually know you actually know what they're going to throw and your opponent needs to guess what you're going to do. Provided, of course, you're good enough. And then you start layering different strikes and motions on top of the whole thing and you make it more complex and more dangerous and it piles up and up and up until you until you've broken your opponent completely down, until you've mentally broken your opponent. And it's not really like about pressure, really. Obviously, it, I've just described so like textbook pressure fighting, but you can accomplish the same doing uh, what Terence Crawford did, like sort of switch between different approaches, mix it up, like use a blend of styles, use a blend of different styles at a truly high level to mess with your opponent, and then set up the knockout blow. This is what I'm talking about. Intent. Intent and initiative wins fights. The key to maintaining initiative is knowing what you're doing with everything you do. Even feints. You never feint for no reason. You feint to set up the follow-up strike. Or you feint to threaten a punch that you're actually going to throw, because... Feints without threats are just pointless activity. It's empty volume. And people mistake activity for initiative very often. As long as you keep your opponent jittery and make them overreact to everything you do, you maintain initiative. You can maintain initiative with properly set up feints, certain safety leads, for example, the jab or the teep, or the threat of a big counter. Like, it can be a right straight, it can be an overhand, can be a cross counter, can be an uppercut, can be a lead hook. See where we are going with this, right? You understand where I'm trying to lead with this. Another example I would like to bring up, it's not the highest level example. Uh, it's it's not a very, like, nuanced, not a very elite fight, but it's it's a good illustrative example. Uh, uh, the example is uh, Zubaira Tohugov versus uh, Hikado Hamash at UFC 267. 
Hamush had a lot of success in spurts because he's kind of like one of those instinctual fighters, but but Tuhugov controlled the fight overall. And he had Hamush jumping out of his shorts in response to every feint because his counterpunching going forward was just so consistent and damaging. A more advanced example that we saw recently was um, uh, Usyk's domination of Anthony Joshua. He didn't necessarily even punish him all that much in the early going, but his constant feints, constant actual feints with with the implied threat of throwing jabs, the, the active lead hand, and his constant readjusting of position kept Joshua's output to a minimum. Joshua may not be like super advanced, but he's still at this level where he actually recognizes that his opponent may have a better angle on him. And this forced forced him to constantly turn with and uh, with Usyk. The the problem is that just Usyk is that much more nimble on the feet than him, and uh, Joshua is kind of wooden, so his turns weren't exactly graceful, and they took a lot of energy and they took them took him out of position. And once you're able to once again once you're able to dictate positioning, you can bait your opponent into taking the wrong angle, and then you can floor them or punish them while they're blind. Again, close stance. You circle and jab, and you move towards your opponent's power side, which is often considered a no-go at the intermediate level, because you can walk into a power right hand, or a power left hand. But, once your defensive reactions are good enough, you can bait that right hand, either slip or shoulder roll with it, either slip it or shoulder roll with it, or block it, I guess, and then you return a powerful rear hand counter of your own. Like, obviously, if the opponent is really good at pivoting and the opponent begins readjusting themselves relative to you, then you may want to start busting out trickier moves, like faking movement one way and pivoting in the opposite direction. But say you want to pressure someone, by definition, you're going to want to be moving forward and keeping your movements as subtle, as energy efficient as possible. So no fancy pivots or shifts unless they're warranted. For example, someone is about to bail on you and you shift into southpaw to deliver a right hook, or Yan versus Sanhagen again, Sandy's about to circle off, so Yan pivots on his rear foot and delivers an uppercut. And so with that out of the way, generally speaking, you're gonna be you're gonna want to be moving on triangles. Forward, step, step. You take step step forward, lateral. Step, step to the side. Lateral step with your front foot across yourself. You pivot. Step, step to readjust position. And again, the idea is to always point your foot, point, point your front, uh, keep your front foot pointed at the center line of your opponent. So you're always in position to throw with power. And again, this creates tension because you keep eating away at the space they've got available for maneuvering. They may start taking bigger, more obvious steps. This makes it easier to see where they're going, easier to intercept them. And since you're always in position to throw, this means they have to constantly be on the lookout for your strikes. They don't really know what you're going to throw if you're mixing up your shots well. All this creates pressure It's a, and tension. It's a combination of different tools used together in a sequence with purpose. I, I think I've said this like a, like a couple dozen times now, but this is crucial. This is incredibly important. 
Each time you take a step forward or a step backwards or a step to the side, it's an implied threat. Your safety leads are going to be your primary tool in creating this tension and pressure. Jabbing, feinting with a jab, throwing the rear, uh, the rear lead, non-committal rear lead, followed with like a like a slappy hook around the guard, that kind of stuff. Throwing multiple volume jabs with a hard jolt mixed in, like a jab, 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 jab. Jabbing to the body, teeps of variety and intensity, etc., etc., etc. Real elite fighting, it's all about playing with your opponent's expectations. Sometimes not throwing anything while moving forward or backwards may throw your opponent off, so they overcommit to an attack they think they can get away with, and then you punish them for it, for attempting to, to do that with a counter. Someone figures, okay, I might throw a naked low kick. He seems too. He, this guy seems front foot heavy. He isn't doing much yet. And then you check, check the kick or push past the kick and like deck the guy with a blitzing combo. So now they know you're ready to explode into something nasty at the drop of a hat. This mutes their volume. So now that you're free to let loose with jabs and straights. Again, all this works together in a cohesive system. Each new tool sets up the next one, and then one after that. And this, again, this doesn't just apply to pressure fighting, but when used properly, nuanced educated pressure fighting obviously can be super fucking scary to deal with, but in general, this sort of process, this sort of like having an intellectual understanding of what you're doing and having it uh, worked out to an instinctual level, this is what separates truly elite all-time great generational fighters from the rest of everyone and Terence Crawford has that it factor as Sean Porter said in this is a very gracious post-fight interview where he praised Terence Crawford for having that special spark that just elevates him above his opposition but uh, beyond all that philosophy all this fighting philosophy of pressure and tension and intent and purpose and all that kind of stuff all that crap. It's really all about throwing strikes that will work well together. Understanding where you, you're positioned relative to your opponent. So ringcraft, footwork. All this understanding of philosophy really like is mostly just to just help you visualize how you're gonna go about beating your opponents. It gives you a better understanding of your style. Uh, but uh, talking like speaking about strikes that work well together like say the basic double jab into low kick combo or like a jab into lead hook to the body into low kick combination it helps press people backwards and it cuts them off while chopping away at their mobility at the same time and whenever you throw round kicks it looks really similar to throwing a right hand so you can pair the low kick with a right straight to the body or a wide rear hook to the body and when the opponent tries lateral movement, that squares the opponent up, so the right straight to the gut is there all day. You know? Uh, I'm, I hope I'm not over-explaining things, but, I hope, uh, but I'm just trying to make this as clear as possible. Like, I'm trying to like, just explain this in a way that would make Terence Crawford's approach make sense. Like, at the elite level, you're not going to be inconsistent. At the elite level, you're not going to be taking rounds off for no reason just because you can. Obviously, you, like, you can against an overmatched opponent, but should you? And I, I think it does a real disservice to Sean Porter to say that Terence Crawford is just simply so much better that Terence Crawford was able to take most of the fight off until the final punch. Because 
that's not what I saw in the in the ring. Terence Crawford used a mix of approaches. He used everything in the book, like very subtly. He kept layering all the stuff that I've described up and up and up and up, and he built and he built and he built until he he finally found his spot. Sean Porter had didn't know what Terence Crawford. Crawford was going to throw next. Like, sure, he could have had a guess that uh, Terence Crawford, like, the reasonable guess that he understood that Terence Crawford was going to throw uh, a lead hook uh, and an uppercut. He just couldn't time it properly. He couldn't time his defense properly. And uh, the clinch constantly kept interrupting with his rhythm, so he couldn't establish his rhythm and kind of, like, like uh, predict what Terence Crawford was going to throw, and this just exhausted him, and this broke him. Terence Crawford kept working with intent, and that's why he won. And yeah, the finishing sequence came when... Uh, uh, and this is another really cool detail that I would like to mention. Throughout the fight... Terence Crawford's corner kept telling him to just uh, sticking to just stick to the game plan, maintain positioning, box with him. Okay, that's what he did. He kind of like they kind of like berated him for not up- upping his volume, and uh, I guess it's a valid criticism uh, from a certain point of view. But however, before round ten started, you could see Terence Crawford asking his corner over and over again, "Can I get him? Can I get him?" Can I get him? Can I get him? And then the corner finally gave him the go-ahead. And he floored Sean Porter with the first uppercut that he threw. He baited, once again, he baited that dynamic explosive lunge from Sean Porter, that initial dynamic entry with a throwaway jab. And then he took minuscule steps backwards, readjusted his angle ever so slightly, That and Sean Porter was just tired enough, just tired enough, where, his, uh, where he finally got somewhat sloppy. Finally, this error. Finally, Terence Crawford forced Sean Porter to make an error. Sean Porter overcommitted to a blitz and squared himself up completely. And that's when the uppercut came in. That's when Terence Crawford blasted him off his feet. Ten rounds. Ten rounds of disciplined, positional, attritional work. Where do you see that kind of discipline? Certainly, it's very rare to see that kind of discipline in MMA. In MMA, exceedingly rare to see that uh, kind of discipline in MMA. It's um, uh, you can see it more often. Can, you can witness it more often in more well-established sports such as boxing, Muay Thai, kickboxing, that kind of stuff. But it's still very rare. It's still a sign of a tremendously talented and incredibly skilled fighter. This kind of control. It's remarkable. Just not enough superlative 
descriptors in my vocabulary to just describe the like the fascination and awe I have towards like Terence Crawford's performance in this fight. Like obviously, yes, Sean Porter is not exactly uh, an all-time generational talent, but like the degree of skill. Sean Porter is, t- is still skilled enough to give anyone a hard time. And uh, generally, he, w- he had been able to turn most, most his outings against uh, champions into an ugly affair, at least from my understanding of uh, what Sean Porter is as a fighter, of uh, who Sean Porter is as a fighter. But in this case, Terence Crawford just kind of made it all look clean. It, I guess it sort of looked kind of ugly to someone who's not very like familiar with all these uh, things that I've just, just like spent the, the past hour talking talking about. But I mean, the talent and skill and the amount of discipline is just self-evident. I think, at least for me, uh, at least for me, it is, and certainly for other people at uh, the fight side. Hopefully, other analysts as well. Anyway, uh, everyone knows the follow-up sequence. Uh, everyone who saw the fight, or perhaps you saw the highlight of the finish. Uh, again, uppercut, re- uh, uppercut right hook. Sean Porter goes down. Uh, you could see the frustration in the way that Porter reacted. It was very obvious. Uh, he made his... Uh, Sean Porter has made his frustrations very obvious to everyone uh, who was present. Uh, it was evident and uh, in, in how he reacted. and just started banging on the canvas, um, threw his head up, kind of like howled in, uh, in despair, I would suppose. Kind of like uh, it was kind of hard to watch seeing uh, a, a fighter of this caliber reacting this way, just for like this sheer realization that uh, Sean Porter put one hundred and ten percent for the whole fight, and then Terence Crawford just sort of upped the ante a little bit and find this tiny spot of sloppiness find this found his moment and then capitalized on it so efficiently and so ruthlessly that uh, nothing that uh, Sean Porter was doing like the realization that Sean Porter could have fought uh, the performance of his lifetime in the ring there and it didn't matter in the end that must be a crushing realization I really feel for the guy uh, what can I say? I guess um, the good news is the good news is is that uh, Terence Crawford has said that he went on the record to say that this is going to be his final bout with top rank boxing and like fucking finally, fucking finally, Bob Arum is going to stop marinating Terence Crawford, like not giving him the matchups that he deserves. Uh, going to see some. Uh, hopefully, we're going to see the matchups that everyone wants to see against other pound-for-pound talents. But this is something that Dan Albert and uh, Lukas Fenrich are going to talk about on their boxing pod. The hopefully soon 
hopefully the the boxing pod that is hopefully going to be out soon so stay tuned for that uh hope i didn't bore you with all my like rambling uh rambling gushing <laughs> like this uh like me jumping up and down like jumping between various topics that may have seemed i guess uh a bit abstract and may may have been and not that interconnected at first glance but i guess uh hopefully what i've said made sense uh, hopefully i was able to explain certain things in a uh, in a clear concise and understandable manner Hopefully I didn't overanalyze anything, because uh, certainly you can run the risk of doing that um, with certain fights, um, especially if you go exchange by exchange and you kind of like focus on minutia like uh, I don't know shoulder rotation and uh, uh, the angle at which the toe was pointed and that kind of stuff. And at this kind of level. It actually matters. With truly elite fighters, I think it actually matters. And it's worth pointing out sometimes. But then again, I focused mostly on the like big picture conceptual stuff in this episode. So I hope you enjoy that. Anyway, uh, I guess that's enough of that. Kind of exhausted the topic. Just, um, this is the kind of stuff that I want to put into... Uh, the instructional that I'm uh, hopefully I'm I'm gonna finish filming before the end of December, before the end of the year. Uh, it's a patron request from a from a Discord patron from from our patron um, from a high tier fightside patron. He like pays us quite a bit of money to make sure like we do stuff for him, and uh, he requested that I record an instructional on. Uh, uh, boxing mechanics and uh, boxing basics, that kind of stuff. And I kind of like, I'm not like strictly a boxing guy. I'm more of a, I guess, uh, boxing for MMA type of person. So I guess I'm going to record like, uh, like a, a broad instructional that uh, uh, explains the fundamental basics in a way that makes it applicable to other combat sports, stuff like MMA and more Muay Thai, I guess, or kickboxing. Obviously, I do not have any official credentials, so I, you 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 are well within your rights to take everything that I say with a grain of salt. It's just that uh, I'm very passionate about uh, fighting and combat sports, so I take um, I spend a lot of time studying the various techniques and the various concepts in fighting, and like uh, I kind of like. As a, I guess, as a student of the whole game, I kind of like try to put um, the things I'm seeing in uh, terms that I would personally understand, and then I sort of convey it to you. I kind of, I'm kind of learning on the job. I'm learning with you, so I guess uh, that this is uh, this uh, what um, this is what's keeping my interest these days largely. That's why I'm still interested in this whole thing. And uh, that's why showings from uh, generational talents are so, uh, are so awe-inspiring to me beyond the obvious reasons. Uh, the obvious reason being that it's just so 
it's just so cool to see. <laughs> it's just it's just cool. And uh, I guess hopefully my enthusiasm towards fighting uh, is shared by my listeners, and um, uh, this uh, I hope you would like to support the fight side further. And uh, maybe those who haven't been supporting us on Patreon would uh, be compelled to support us because we put out a lot of stuff. We put out the put out tons of put out tons of alternate commentary and uh, in the Discord specifically in our Discord community we we are very active. We're all very active. We talk to uh, current like amateur competitors or like uh, of uh, up up and like. Uh, I guess um, uh, pursuing professionals those who would like to compete at one point or another professionally people who train so we share training tips we share analysis we share like just share cool fights Some sometimes we host like uh, fight watches uh, fight watch parties where just hop into sync tube and then watch a bunch of fights discuss them and kind of commentate on them it's very cool very comfy very tightly knit community and uh, you, if you share our passions uh, our passion for combat sports you'd certainly be very welcome to join and beyond that uh, the fight side kind of allows me to actually have a stable source of income so you're actually feeding me directly <laughs> yeah. I've actually bought, uh, I've actually bought like half a cow, half a cow's worth of beef with uh, the fight side money last month. So you're quite literally feeding my family. <laughs> Your support quite literally feeds my family because I live in a fucking field, as you all know. I've also recorded. Uh, if you're interested in seeing it, I've recorded an instructional uh, for patrons uh, that's um, that has to do with. Uh, the proper mechanics and the proper setups for throwing a, a lead hook. It's a, uh, it's thirty minutes of uh, just uh, no wankery. I just directly focus on explaining all the details, all the nitty gritty nuts and bolts stuff that goes into throwing a mechanically proper, well set up left hook. So, if you're a beginner that wish, wishes to learn how to throw a uh, a good left hook. I would suppose. Uh, I definitely recommend you check it out. I think it will it will be helpful. One of our supporters, uh, Chanel Lee, uh, Judica Lee on um, Twitter. He, he's um, an amateur competitor. He's an amateur boxer. Uh, soon to have. Uh, he competed in several like exhibition bouts, and I think he's going to soon have. Uh, there wasn't a clear winner or loser, I think, in those, but he clearly won those if you actually watch the footage. And uh, he was very thankful for uh, my advice. So I guess there's, there's my credentials. <laughs> I, I hope it's not flimsy enough. So, so uh, basically, generally speaking, I seem to not have ruined anyone to whom I have given I have given my advice, so uh, I, I guess it's pretty good. So if you want more, subscribe to our Patreon, subscribe to the Discord, and ask me questions, and check out the instructionals. 
Anyway, that's uh, that's everything plugged. Uh, check out the fight site, the actual website where we post uh, previews of upcoming cards, where we post stuff picks. Lukas Fenrich has a, a weekly column where he uh, called boxing previews, where he talks about the upcoming boxing cards, uh, breaks them down fairly in depth. It's a very nice like newspapery format where he talks about fighters from. A fighter from such and such country is going to, with a such and such record, is going to square up against such and such fighter who has such and such style. It's it's very neat. And uh, Dan Albert wrote a very lengthy article that explains just how Piotr Jan, just what makes Piotr Jan so special, just how Piotr Jan is able to dominate his opponent so, so thoroughly. And it has to do with some of, some of the concepts that I have down, uh, that I have outlined in this podcast. Also check out Danny Martin's metagame series. Basically, I think it should be required reading for everyone who wishes to get into combat sports and start thinking about combat sports analytically, or maybe improve their own fighting process if they train, if you train. And uh, there's also the UFC's Meatpacking Plan Part 3, which acts as a compendium for all the basic, for all the most fundamental fighting concepts that I consider essential if you are to have any success in your training, in your progress as a fighter, or just simply uh, if you wish to get fight, get good at fighting, uh, like um, in itself, like uh, as a hobby, uh, I think uh, I've I've been able to succinctly and clearly communicate the most important concepts in fighting. All right, this is now the end of the show. Thank you for sticking. Thank you for putting up with me for 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 an hour, and uh, I guess I'll see you later. We may be extraordinarily cynical at the fight side, but God damn it, we just love good fighting. Can you really fault us for it? Sean Porter may want to try and find himself a new dad. What the fuck was that?